0: <laughs> um, yeah, I am a professional dancer, and um, I'd like to start by doing the robot. Just kidding. Um, really good to be with you guys. I have—it's um, been a while since I've been back in Mission Viejo. I, um, last time I was here, there was a plastic sheet right here, and um, this this yet this room did not yet fully was not fully inhabited yet, and there was—I remember on the weekend I was here. Um, Tim, who was just up here, and then, and then John Ramsey, some of you guys know him, too. He, they were, like, driving that scissor lift into here. And some of you remember, like, thinking, that, that might fall over and kill someone. Like, everybody, I mean, everybody's kind of like, this is hilarious, but we might die. And um, so I was there on that weekend. So very interesting to kind of be back here now and to see, you know, that was the weekend before this sort of happened. And so to be able to see kind of all of the space being, you know, sort of, there's, you know, more space and more seats and people beginning to fill in. Very cool. Um, but I do have a question. I just want to ask this side of the room first. How many of you who sit here have never sat over here on a weekend? Look around you. Look around. Just look around. Notice what you just saw there. There's a little experiment. And you, people of the darker colored chairs room, how many of you since this room opened have never once sat over there? Look around. Look at that. Tell, tell, tell yourself you're not a person of habit. Very interesting. You should know that it was equally. And I should, I should also say this. You guys, there are like really nice people over here. You should actually... Check it out. And you guys, stay where you are. You don't... I, I actually talked to some, one of the, one of the like, you know, hosts, the hospitality team, and he was like, he's like, I'm not kidding you. That side of the room every week is way more... You have coffee cups, they're a nightmare, and you guys, sparkling clean. Just want to let you know. So great job. I don't want to create a rivalry or anything, but I'm just, I'm just reporting what I saw. So anyways, um, like I said, very good to be here. It is the season of what we call Advent... Advent is a, is a season of, uh, the word Advent just means arrival, but it's a season in which the church, um, most of the church, the global church, follows what's called a liturgical calendar. And there are various seasons in that calendar. One of them you might be familiar with is the one leading up to Easter called Lent. This is sort of the other one that's sort of like that, which is called Advent. And it leads us into this time of, um, of, of anticipating Jesus' arrival. And very, it is very exciting to be here, and I'm, um, this, is, this is the time when we begin to talk about hope We'll talk about peace and love and joy in the subsequent weeks, but this is where we kick off that, that sort of expectation, the, the hope of the arrival of Jesus. And so, before we jump into the message tonight or today, would you, um, would you, would you pray with me? And um, we'll just give a little bit of pause and a little bit of space um, for a moment. Jesus, um, coming off of a few days of a lot of family and all of the joy and struggle and challenge and beauty, and laughter, and whatever else is a part of that that is not those things. And all of the shopping that has begun to sort of sort of get some momentum. God, we realize this may be one of the only times in our week where we get to pause. Lord, in all of the things that we hope to accomplish, all the things that we hope to do in these few moments, we acknowledge that we cannot do those things from inside this room. We acknowledge that you are here, and that you are at work in our own hearts, And so we pause. As a group, maybe we just breathe for a moment. For a lot of us, that may be all that we needed today was to just pause and have you meet us here, Jesus. Jesus, in a season of hope and a season of potential sadness and despair as well, we read Psalm 40 in the words of David who said this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand, and he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to, look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O oh Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us no one can recount to you. Were I to speak of them, they would be too many, to declare. Jesus, we, um, we acknowledge that there is mud and mire, and we need to be rescued at times, and we, rescue, we acknowledge as well, God, that you are the God of hope, and we eagerly anticipate this Christmas season, the season of hope. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, like I said, Advent is a season in which we wait. It is, and I would say this, if you are at all like me, in my own life, waiting is probably like, kind of like public enemy number one. You know, and I know, you know, you may be more patient than I am. I have a feeling that my own kids, when they talk about me as a father, it, you know, as their adults, they'll say, you know, I feel like my dad was always in making us try to hurry. I feel like, you know, for me, if you ask, most of us, again, if you're like me, if you ask someone who had family in town, maybe perhaps for Thanksgiving or whatever, and you ask them, hey, how was your flight, which is always a question, it's sort of a bizarre question anyways, like, how was your flight? Well, I really didn't have anything to do with it, but I, we, we were in the air and then we landed and that was sort of the whole... That was it, you know. And <clears throat> but we, we were, we're asking the question about, like, what sort of... Basically, you're asking, how long did you have to wait at different times, right? I mean, really, that's what you're asking. Because you really do the, well, we, we pulled away from the gate, and then we sat there. I mean, it had to have been at least 20 minutes. And then did you fly in the air and come over here? Yes, but it was 20 minutes of waiting. It's unbelievable. We had reservations. Before we go in there, they tell us it'll be a five minute wait, which is fine, but we had a reservation and we had to wait for 15 minutes. I thought I was going to come unglued. I mean, that's the kind of thing we sort of experience in our own lives. Only now when we talk about waiting, waiting has changed a lot in recent years, since about 2007. And the reason why I say 2007 is how many of you have an iPhone? Just hold it up. Some of you have it handy. It's not like you have to dig in your purse or your back pocket or it's like, bam, here it is. Some of you activated a little candle app where there's a little candle blowing right there. That's a candle. I can blow it out. It's right there. Like some of you have that happening. How many of you guys have a phone that wishes it was an iPhone? Just show, Oh, yep. Hold that up. Right. How many of you guys wish you had either device? Some of the, yeah, I do. I don't have one. Am my.' shame. Right. No, not shame. That's good. Resist. Fight. Okay. Now, those devices have changed the way we wait entirely. I mean now when you're waiting you can I mean you can you can buy something you could buy a you could buy an archery set on Amazon you could buy shoes from Zappos you could You could buy new insurance. You could do work. You could check your email. You could update your status on your Facebook. You could follow your Twitter feed. You can read newsfeed. You can watch movies. You can order a Chipotle burrito and order it so that it's so specific that your whole order is done. And when you show up there, you just say, hi, I'm the person who ordered over this magical black box. And I'd like you to hand me my burrito. I don't want to wait. (laughs) We have all, we have no reason to wait anymore. In fact, if you're, if you're bored and you have one of those magical devices, it is your own fault, or it's the world's, because they didn't provide Wi-Fi, wherever you are. But there's this, it's really your own fault. And it has changed the way we wait, mainly to make waiting more of just sort of, how do I distract myself while I feel like I'm in this situation of waiting? Maybe you're like Keller, who just got an iPad. I saw a guy, a grown man, in like a fast food restaurant recently, and he was playing a driving game, and he was like steering his <laughs> iPad and doing this. And he, and he was it was like, I kind of was like, I guess that's reasonable now. There's a grown man driving a car and <laughs> kind of yelling at the machine. You're like, this is what we do now, and we wait. Maybe parents, you can relate to this. I have, I have three kids, and my youngest is three years old. And my gosh, you should watch him fly through the screens on an iPad. It's like, you can do on a phone, or you can just, whatever he's doing, you can just get right through the screen, find everything. It's like, my, my aunt, we were, at, um, we're at Thanksgiving, and she's like, hey, he's, he's, he's looking on Netflix. I go, because like, she's worried he's going to you know, watch something he's not supposed to. He knows exactly how to get to his favorite show. Oh, there's the Wonder Pets. I don't know if some of your parents have seen the Wonder Pets show. It, You guys, it is a gripping crime drama. Every, and it is just shocking how good the cinematography is of these little pets that rescue other animals. And I just, every week, I'm drawn in. But anyway, so he's watching this stuff. And recently, we're on our way to Disneyland. Listen to this. We're on our way to Disneyland as a family. Hey, we're going to Disneyland. It's going to be great. We're going to hang out, whatever. And, you know, we're hitting some traffic on the way out there. So, you know, my son, is he's found Netflix. He's watching Wonder Pets. We get to the parking lot. And we're about ready to go in. And, and now we're like, hey, buddy, it's time to go in Disneyland. And he is like, wait. We're like, wait, It's Disneyland. He's like, I want, he's like, I'm watching the show. I'm like, no, so we have, to, we have to pry this device out of his hands and put it in the car and, you know, lock it. And he, and he starts crying. And now I'm dragging my own three-year-old son crying into Disneyland. Because in the, way, in the waiting time, the distraction became more fun than the actual event we were hoping to sort of experience together. You know, waiting has changed so much. And we talk about Advent and we talk about waiting in this Advent season. We talk about hope. Hope really is a posture of waiting. I mean, there's other ways to describe hope, but essentially it's a posture of waiting. How do we wait in the time where we're expecting something to happen that has not yet happened? And clearly it's not merely just sort of being distracted while we sort of kill time for something else to happen. There's something else when we talk about Advent, about hope, that has to do with a particular frame or orientation of waiting. In the Bible, there, there's, the Bible is full of people who are waiting and searching for something. They're waiting for God to show up. I should say this, if you have a Bible, or you need a Bible, if people walk around and hand you one, if you have a magical device that you had just held up, you can access the Bible on there too as well. As I do this, this is the way, you, <laughs> I'm just imagining myself scrolling through the Bible, like, okay, whatever. Anyway, um, if you need a Bible, <clears throat> people will get you one, just raise your hand, I'll, send you, I'll give you one. But people are waiting for something. They're waiting for God to show up because they're anticipating a future that has not yet happened, and they're acknowledging the reality that things as they are right now are not as they should be. Now, the defining story of waiting in the Bible is the Exodus. It's the part of the Bible that describes the captivity of the people of God, the Israelites, under 400 years of Egyptian rule. And it is the story, the reason why it's defining is because that's even the way God defines himself throughout the rest of the Bible. He defines himself as, I am, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who rescued you out of slavery from Egypt and brought you to all that. That's how he talks about himself. And it is the story through which a lot of the sort of Jewish experience is even understood. Even to ask someone who is Jewish about the, the captivity in Israel they, or in Egypt, they don't talk about it like those people had that experience. They talk about it, my, we, my people, we experienced this captivity. It is the defining story of captivity, of exile, of waiting in the Bible. Now, check, what I want to do is this. Let's read together Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through eight. If you want to turn there right now, you can. If you don't have a Bible or you can't do the magical flick, it'll be on the screen. Here it is. And here's... What it says. This is God saying to Moses, he says, here's what I want you to say to the people. And I remember, Moses is the guy who was raised by Egyptians, who happens to be a Hebrew, and he's saying, God's saying, go and tell them, and he's kind of like freaking out, how am I going to do this stuff? And here's what God's, here's the message I want you to give to your own people. Listen to this message. And we're going to read it all together, all right? Everybody ready? Here we go. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and i will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment i will take you as my own people and i will be your god then you will know that i am the lord your god who brought you out from under the yoke of the egyptians and i will give you, oh sorry and i will bring you to the land i swore with uplifted hand to give to abraham to isaac and to jacob i will give it to you as a possession i am the lord now there's no way to interpret that as not hopeful. I mean, that's awesome. The people are going, we're dying over here. The Egyptians are cruel. They're dominating us. They're ta- I mean, they're just, every day we work and we make, we make bricks and we're just exhausted about trying to build this empire for this cruel person, this pharaoh person. We're longing for a rescue. And God tells Moses, go and tell these people, I'm going to be their God. And I will rescue them. And I will take them out of this place of waiting. They no longer have to wait because I will come, I will sweep in, and I will will be their God, and I will dwell among them, and I will give them this home, I'll give them a home to live in, and I will be with them there. And the people are so excited. And here's what it says in verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. In other words... The people who had longed for a rescue, who had longed to see an end to their own exile, the people who had hoped for a different future couldn't even hear it when it was announced to them. It had literally, their, 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 even their capacity to embrace hope had literally been beaten out of them by their slave masters. It says that they couldn't even hear him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. It is to say then that they couldn't hear him because... They were in such a state of despair that the idea of hope was so unbelievably unfathomable. So foreign to them. That hope is so hard to come by. My guess is that some of you in this room are in a place where you go, my gosh, I need hope, but I just don't think I can embrace it. And the circumstances of my own life have so beaten out the opportunity for me. I'm in such a state of despair that I have a hard time even, I want hope, but I have a hard time even embracing it. I can't even hear it the opportunity for me to sort of embrace hope has sort of been lost on the circumstances which are so incredibly difficult. If that's you, you are in good company. This is the way that God's people heard their message of hope when they first began to hear it. That a better or a different future was so hard to imagine because of the despair that they were experiencing. But this isn't the first time that God's people have experienced sort of this encounter with exile this knowledge of what it means to be captive. The, the first one actually happens much earlier. If you're really adept at flipping your, your Bible, you can go to Genesis chapter 3. And if you grew up in the church, you would know that Genesis 3, is, this is the part of the Bible that describes the sort of alienation of human beings from God. This is the, this is the moment when Adam and Eve decide, we're going to do it our own way. And they commit a sin, which then sort of sets, on, sets off this sort of avalanche of separation from God. And here's what God says to them after they sort of make this decision to try and be, as the Bible says, like gods. Here's what he says, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him, meaning Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Doesn't that sound like exile? You know, hey, you have this place in which you're supposed to dwell. There's a relationship between God and his people in this place called the Garden of Eden. And then they they decide to live without God. And then God says, you can't be here anymore. There's a relationship described between Adam and Eve and God in such a way that God's like walking in the garden with them. Incredibly unique kind of relationship. And now God says, you can't come here anymore. Your home is somewhere else. It's not the place I designed for you. It's going to be a different, you're going to be out. And I'll make sure you can't come back in. And doesn't it feel like exile? People and God and creation, all that stuff, we're supposed to be uniquely sort of linked together. And now all of a sudden there's this thing that isn't the way it's supposed to be anymore that's kind of lost. Not everything is united anymore. And yet God's promises in Exodus 6... I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I'll take you as my own. I'll dwell among you. I'll give you a home. This is what's sort of happening in, this, in the passage. And there's this message of hope where God seems to be saying, I'm going to chase after you and I'll be your God. And there's this message of hope where God says, I'll be at home with you in your land that I give you. There's a homecoming that's anticipated here. When we talk about thanksgiving, We talk about Christmas coming up. This is the time we start asking people, are you guys going home for Thanksgiving? Are you, or maybe for some cases, are your kids, if you're old enough, are your kids coming home to you for Thanksgiving? And we have this anticipation, regardless of our own experience of our own family, about how good or bad it was, we have this expectation, at least it's some idea or this picture, that Thanksgiving is about us being together at the same table. That no, we'd sit together, we'd come home, to all, the, all the members of our family would look at each other, and we'd start talking, this is their ideal picture of it, of course. But we'd, you know, we'd look at each other and say, we're thankful for each other, we're thankful for what God has done. We're thankful that we get to be alive together in those kinds of scenarios. And that's the way we imagine it should be. And we imagine then that God would sort of, these people are imagining that God would dwell among them, and he would make his home among them, and he'd give them a land and a place to call their own. They would say, this is home, and it's good to be home. And This is the time of year when you start seeing those commercials on tv where people have come from a lot they always and it's so it always gets me like a little bit emotional it's like you know they have a some clearly it's a someone a soldier coming back from you know afghanistan or whatever and they it's like a Folgers commercial or something you know and then there's the that person comes in and makes a cup of coffee and then mom comes down and hugs the soldier they haven't seen a year and a half and there's this big embrace and happy thanksgiving mom and you know Folgers you know you're just like oh man i'm buying that you know whatever it is But there's a sense at homecoming that everything is as it's being put back to the way it's supposed to be. And these people are longing for that time. And they keep oscillating between hope. God is giving us, he's rescuing us, and he's among us, and despair. Why are the Egyptians here? I thought we were God's people. And if it's not the Egyptians, it's the Assyrians. And if it's not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. If it's not the Babylonians, it's the Romans. And they're waiting. God, when are you going to end this constant sort of back and forth cycle of when when do you permanently dwell among us? And when is there an end to all of this kind of stuff? When does the struggle end? I um, I, I, have recently, um, I have recently sort of experienced this kind of despair in a very profound way. Some of you in here are with me. You might have your heads covered in shame today. But I, um, I, have a, I went to a college where our football team is not very good. And we... Someone escort that man from the building, please. Um... <laughs> And there was a time, not that long ago, where we won eight in a row against our Crosstown rival. And I long for the days. When will God show up, redeem his people, and rescue them against the tyranny of this other college, which everybody in Orange County has adopted as their own, and they should know what they're worshiping false idols. But there's this... I have to deal with the shame. I have this yellow and blue flag outside my house, and my neighbor every day, hey man, how's it going? Lost another one. <laughs> Here's the eggs on your car. And I don't appreciate you. And I, there's a day when these troubles will end. I will, I long for the day, and all those people and their maroon and yellow will disappear from my sight. And, you know, The people who belong to God are saying, is there going to be an end to this cycle in which you, tend, you, you are here and you're operating and you're chasing after us, but not everything seems to be working out. When is there going to come a moment when there will be an end to the exile and God will reside, you will reside among us, and that there will be this sort of sense of this is the way things ought to be. Now this promise of God residing among his people and sort of giving them a place and restoring them is wrapped up in, the, in a single person. God's anointed person, the one called the Messiah. In Greek, the word is the, is the Christ. In Hebrew, it's the Meshiach, or the Messiah, so that's just translated. And you get this sense, then, that there's this person, this anointed person, who would pull all this together. God would dwell with his people, there'd be a homecoming, and everything would be put to be made right. Let me recap. The people of experience, God's people. The defining story is this picture of being in exile and being rescued by God. And then there's this other sort of... Exile from God already that people have, people, everybody, all of humanity experiences, that we were born separated already from God, and yet there's this picture of God pursuing his own people saying, I want to unite you back with me. In the Bible, there's this phrase that happens every so often, and it is the phrase, on that day. And when people are uttering that phrase, a lot you hear it from the prophets who are saying, On that day, this is what will happen. And there's all these things that are start happening. God's justice will be poured out, his goodness of mercy. The Bible even talks about in, in Isaiah, talks about the, the hills singing and the trees clapping their hands, whatever that means. There's all there's just this unbelievable, all of creation bursts in joy on that day. Here I'll show you on the screen in Zechariah 14, chapter 9, it says this the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Our God, the God who dwells with, He will be the God over all of it. On that day. Until then, we're sort of waiting for Him to show up, but we're waiting for this person to show up. Because when on that day happens, there will be God's justice reigning throughout. There will be goodness and there will be mercy, and the world will be made right, and God will dwell with us. That's where we get the phrase at Christmas, we sing Emmanuel. Come, oh come, Emmanuel. God will be with us. God with us. And the kingdom of God will be firmly established. And ushering that day in will be God's anointed person, the Messiah, Emmanuel. Now that Messiah, the person who everyone's anticipating to come on that day, is supposed to come from the the lineage of of Israel's Israel's most famous king, a guy named David. And he's supposed to come out of that lineage. And that's why at the beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, you have this long list of so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. You have this long sort of lineage which is, which is indicating that the person of Jesus is connected to this lineage, the one through David's line, the one which God promised would last forever, the one who God says to um, David, he says, "All oh, my house, your, your house will live forever, and I will dwell with this person. And so there's this long sort of setup, and there's this person who we call the Messiah, Jesus, and he acted like a Messiah. And he announced the kingdom of God. And he talked about things. And he, people, were, people followed him as if he was a Messiah. And he said things like this in Mark chapter 1. He says this. After John, meaning John the, the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here's the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, the phrase come near isn't like... Um, a a, a time reference like my birthday is near or you know the whatever like um uh the work week is near it's like it's more about proximity other translations say that the kingdom of god is at hand or the kingdom of god is among you it's right here jesus is saying here's the kingdom of god the on that day stuff you're hoping about the kingdom of god here it is here it comes and he says good news so here's what you want to do Repent, which just simply means turn around, and believe this good news. And here's sort of what he's saying. This is the thing you've been hoping for has been happening. But there's a reasonable sort of question about that, though. Because the Jews are saying, well, if that's the case, you're acting kind of like a Messiah. There's, you're doing some healings. There's, um, there's people who are sort of being helped, and you're seeing miracles sort of unfold. But why are the Romans still bossing us around? And you know, why aren't there people supposed to be raised from the dead? Like, given, isn't that what you're supposed to usher in? A lot of we kind of believe that's supposed to happen. How come that hasn't happened yet? And Jesus, you're talking and acting like someone who's the Messiah, the Anointed One, but yet you're you're kind of like hanging out with people that our religious leaders say are notorious sinners. The Bible even says at one point the the, the religious sort of leaders ask Jesus' disciples, you know, like, did you did you? Why does your teacher hang out with such scum? And even John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, even he says, hey, Jesus, are you, are you really the guy or should we wait for someone else? Look what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7. I realize I'm jumping around a lot. Just follow on the screen if you can't get there quickly enough. But here's what he says in verse 21. He's just finished up his long speech. He's, he's wrapping up his long speech called the Sermon on the Mount, which is his like, longest speech, it's probably, some people believe it's a collection of a bunch of speeches, but he's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's wrapping it up, and he says this phrase, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Now, all I want you to focus on is the words on that day. Because even Jesus is saying, even though he said the kingdom of God is at hand or is near or is right here among you, he then says this phrase, on that day. Which means that the work that has been initiated is not yet completed. And people begin to start saying, well, so are you not the guy? Or is there another Messiah? Or what do we do? Now, let me just pause for a moment. In case you didn't know this. Christians believe, like, things that are kind of crazy. Just want to let you know that. And if you weren't sure about that, now if you grew up in the church, they don't seem crazy to you, but to everybody else, they're kind of insane. I mean, we believe that a guy in the first century in the Mediterranean sort of world was actually God in the flesh, who ushered in the kingdom of God, who walked on water, performed miracles, healed the blind and the sick, and made the lame walk, and he... Um, and then this is, he was executed on a Roman cross. He was pronounced dead. And in so doing, by dying on the cross, he absorbed onto himself all the, all the evil that would separate people from, from themselves and God. And he put that sin and evil to death. And then a couple days later, he rose again and would appear to some witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven. And that's not the end of the story. And we also believe that he'll come again. Now that's just a little bit crazy, but this is what we. This is what the ministry of Jesus is about. This is what actually happened, and the people who began to understand, began to follow Jesus, are going, is is this happening right now, or should we are you should we wait? How do we how are we supposed to live? And they're actually asking the same question a lot of you are asking right now in this room, which is how are we supposed to live? God's kingdom is initiated and announced by Jesus, and yet it's not fully fulfilled. And it says, Jesus seems to be saying that it's not going to be completed until he comes again. At Advent, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus as the Lord. And we wait in eager expectation of his return. And the question is, how do we do that? I know that if you're, if you're you know, you're, this is your home church, and you hear Mike, who's the usual guy, talking about the kingdom of God and about what it looks like. He uses the terms now and not yet. I use just the different, slightly different already and not yet of the kingdom. But in the already sort of sense of God's kingdom breaking through, you can see moments where you see God's goodness breaking through in the person of Jesus. At the Irvine campus, when we do Rooted, um, there is... Um, we do a baptism at the end, at the, at the root of graduation. People graduate, we feed them, and then we serve them dessert next to baptism, which how else would you have a baptism except with dessert? So people are talking about God's rescue of their own life, and they're publicly celebrating it. You have people breaking addiction and behavior and being surrounded by God's people, the body of Christ, who embrace them and say, we walk with you, and whatever happens, you don't stand alone anymore. We're with you together, and you see this beautiful picture of God at work. Already, God breaking through and the kingdom showing itself to be victorious over the systems and powers of the world. We're at this Thanksgiving service we have at the Irvine campus. Thursday, we had two services, 9 and 11, and there's um, a woman stands up and she says, It's been a really tough year, but I could not be more thankful. She starts crying. My husband lost his job. It's been really tough on us, but I have to tell you how I feel like we've recovered our family. I wish, we, I wish we weren't in this kind of the financial stress that we're in and we've been bailed out in some really pretty remarkable ways, but I feel like I got my husband back. I feel like I got my family back, and so I'm thankful. And you begin to see this picture of God breaking through in a powerful way in the middle of despair. I should tell you this, it's pretty wild. There's this sort of spirit of gratitude that starts to form. If gratitude happens to be contagious. This is why it's sort of fun to do it in public space. But it starts to get contagious and a spirit of generosity starts to form up in the, in the people. And this person anonymously walks up to her and says, I was so moved by your story. I want you to have all the money in my wallet. It was kind of messy and kind of, we this kind of I'm not sure that was the way, we're not telling people to do that. But it's kind of out of control and this guy just goes, here's, I just, I, your story so moved me. And she comes to me and she gives me this huge hug and she says, this is what God's people do. So God's kingdom is breaking through in despair already. And there's also this not yet picture of God. Now we see the world around us and we go, it's still pretty broken. In my own rooted group, the one I was leading, I was leading a group of young couples. And these all young married couples and we're talking and, you know, over the course of the couple of weeks you're seeing the group bound together and people sharing and and sort of entering into each other's lives and vulnerability and safety and having them bond together. And, you know, this one guy calls me about the sixth or seventh week and says, it's over between me and my wife. Everything's falling apart. He's crying. So we, we meet in my office and talk about what's going on. And he's just undone. And the way he described it, though he didn't use these words, the way he described it was no different than an exile. I feel lost and alone and I feel captive and I don't know what to do now. And as we sat there, we both cried and I prayed for him. I began to thinking: This is a person who needs a rescue, who needs restoration, who is longing for hope in the midst of despair and loneliness. One of the services, a 10 year old kid stood up. And what we did is we had people kind of sharing, you know, for about a minute at a time. This kid stands up and he, he goes, I'm so thankful for my mom and my, my dad. They're such great parents. And he said, I'm so thankful for the way God has taken care of us. And my, and my mom is now facing her second battle with cancer. And he starts to cry. And the room starts to cry. And he says, I'm so thankful. And I say, oh my gosh, God, how are you not showing up right now? And there is the not yet. And so we live in this space of already and not yet people. And so we wait, too. How do you live in the middle of this already and not yet? I think absolutely to begin with, we have to acknowledge the reality of despair. Let's, let's call despair what it actually is. Christians, the best, well in, the best well-meaning Christians in the world, have often undercut the, the sort of seriousness of despair with something they think is really actually giving hope, but that's not actually hope. Which is to give little Christian platitudes. Little like, oh, you know, I'm, I lost my job. Well, God's bigger than your job. That's not helpful. <laughs> is God bigger than this punch in your face? I'm not sure. <laughs> my parents are getting divorced. I'm having trouble in my marriage. I'm facing an addiction I didn't realize was there. You don't just get to throw a little slap a little, and God will reign over those things. That just doesn't... Let's acknowledge that there is real despair even in our own midst and we ought to call it so. I mean, if we're going to be serious about hope, then we have to be very serious about despair too and say, that is for real. When someone says to us, my life is falling apart, we don't simply say, well, God will just sort of deal with it. That's sort of passing them on. What we say is, my gosh, that feels like, and it sounds like exile, feels like captivity. How do I enter into that with you in some way? I just want you to know while you're facing this, as much as I'm able, I don't want you to have to be alone. And you can, you, can, you can count on me to at least cry with and know that I'll be there. That is acknowledging despair. And more often than not, we do more damage trying to minimize the pain of other people and trying to pass it off as not that big of a deal. Let's acknowledge that despair is real. Secondly is this, and I would say, I want to be very careful the way that I say this. Because it could come off like a Christian platitude as well. And I would say, if you choose to use this statement, be very, very careful how you use it. Despair, in some ways, in some miraculous and powerful and confusing ways, is a signpost to hope. It really is. You can see why I'd want you to be careful when you use it. Yesterday, I'm playing with my, uh, my kids. We're playing Legos. We're building stuff. And my, my oldest son, he's, he turns, well, he's, he's almost eight. But he's, he's, he's obsessed with baseball. And so when he builds Legos, he builds baseball stadiums. This is literally, he's like, he's like, look, I made Fenway Park. And I'm like, that's actually Fenway Park. There's the green monster, as you guys watch, and there's like foul poles. He's like, really got this pretty detailed, like, actual baseball stadium. And then my daughter likes to build, you know, she, she's five, she likes to build malls. And in her mall, <laughs> scary, in her mall, she's like, this is where you can buy the tires, and this is where you can buy a violin must be Walmart. Um, but there's sort of so there she's got that and then my youngest is 3 and he just stacks the Legos as high as he can get them. Look, dad, a tower. I'm like, you are Frank Lloyd Wright. I just want you to know. I just you are an architect. So, they're they're building stuff and eventually what will happen is this, you can see how and I build an awesome little spaceship or something. It is awesome. Um, but anyway, Mike we're all playing and eventually, my three-year-old will just decide it's time to be Godzilla. <laughs> like, I'm done with the building. It's time for some destruction. And he'll just, <coughs> you know, and like, and my oldest two are screaming, Dad, Dad. And I'm like, I'm protecting my spaceship. You're on your own. And they're, you know, they're like, they're watching things get destroyed. And my son, just my youngest is Scotty, just scattering all these, these Legos everywhere. Now, in all of the, this, with well, the melee, you can see pieces of things that are broken apart, chunks of things that used to form something else. In other words, there are pieces of things that were intended to be pieced together that are now broken apart. And you can tell, looking at all the wreckage, there's a way these things are supposed to be put together that aren't totally there. There's a way if we were to take some of these things and we were to, we could kind of figure them I bet there's a way these things belong back together. And we can tell that there's, even by looking at the wreckage, we can tell there's a way that things are supposed to be that aren't yet presently. In that strange way, despair points us To hope. Probably the best example of this is the cross. There is a moment of profound despair, which has somehow underneath it this pointing to hope. To acknowledge the reality of despair, and we also carefully begin to sort of understand that despair is a signpost to hope. And then there's this other thing we do we live in anticipation of God's future in the present. You live in anticipation of God's future in the present. How many of you guys went and saw an opening weekend, you saw the Twilight movie? Woo, people like, Woo, I totally did. Okay, how many of you guys like dressed up? So out curiosity, <laughs> anybody, nobody, anybody? Okay, one person, I, I kind of, I might have, I have some fangs, I put them on. Okay, whatever. Now, <laughs> you see those people at the mall who got there really early. I mean, like, really early, like, stupid early. And they, they, you know, they're dressed up like a wolf or whatever, you know, like, I'm a wolf. Oh, wow. Nice work. Um, so there's a wolf, and there's, like, a vampire dude. And, they're, and they're, they've already read the story, and they're anticipating what they're going to see on the movie screen. Like, isn't it going to be great when this happens? And there's like, oh, I don't know, I love you. Or, I don't know, I've never, I don't, I've never seen a Twilight movie. But whatever that is, they're sort of enacting what's supposed to happen already in anticipation. And all of us normal people walk by and go... That is so sad. But we all walk by and we watch these people and we go, these are people who are anticipating the movie they're about to see in their present life. They're already beginning to sort of imagine it as real and live it out as real. The, the Bible says that when, at the, when on that, the on that day moment, when that sort of happens, you have God's kingdom coming to bear on the earth. Not everybody who's been waiting around patiently being taken away. In other words, here's what it says in Revelation 21. This is John writing this. He says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is, those are the words right out of Isaiah. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he... Will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There is this kingdom on that day that is coming to bear on the earth. Not us being taken away, but the the kingdom of God coming to bear on the earth, which means if I was to ask you what kinds of things would sort of characterize that kingdom in the earth when that day happens, you would say things most likely like there would be goodness and love. People would live in acknowledgement and recognition of their forgiveness and God's grace. They would see justice poured out. And so to live in anticipation of that reality in the future, or the, reality that's the future reality in the present, is to say we will live out God's goodness and joy and healing and peace. We'll participate as people of hope who eagerly are waiting for something to happen, not merely as people just sort of biding our time, hoping that someday God will just rescue us, sort of unaffected from the world, but rather we would say, how do we engage the world in such a way that we begin to see God's kingdom breaking through in the present world? Forgiveness and mercy and joy, those are things the world is longing for. They are pictures and signposts of the kingdom itself that is to come. Waiting isn't killing time. We talk about Advent. We talk about hope. Waiting is about actively joining God now in what he hasn't yet finished. That is, is hopeful anticipation. Would you guys do this with me? Would you close your eyes? I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of respond to what you've heard. And what I want you to do is, you kind of sit for a moment. Is just, just I want you. I'm going to just kind of have you walk through a couple of things, just you and God, kind of stuff. So, would you close your eyes? Let me take another deep breath. In your own life. Where have you seen God showing up in an already kind of way? In other words, you've seen God's kingdom break through powerfully and mightily. Where have you found yourself being rescued in which you can say, I've seen God's kingdom showing up in powerful ways. Maybe you give thanks to God for those things. For some of you, it might be a recap of what you've already shared at Thanksgiving. That is okay to do that again. Now, where are you when it comes to the not yet? Maybe you are a person who's kind of been conditioned to sort of kid yourself out of the reality of despair. And maybe in this moment, you acknowledge the not yet. The reality of the despair that says, Your work isn't finished because of these things, and I feel it, and I acknowledge it as exile and despair. Maybe you bring those things to God now. Jesus, would you hear the cry of people who say, When? Who say, I'm lonely, and I need a rescuer. For those of us who belong to Jesus, how will you participate in God's project of hope in the world? How will you be an agent of reconciliation? How will you join God in his kingdom work in the present? Where will you courageously and boldly say, I will not participate in some of these things in this world? And where will you say about those same things, God, I want to move courageously in scandalous forgiveness, in mercy, in justice. Jesus, we, we come to you and we expect eagerly, anticipating your return, whenever that might be. And in the present we live, participating in what you've already initiated. And God, as we respond in this space and we are sung over and get to respond together in song, would you hear our words as the collective prayer of people who are already and not yet kind of people. Jesus, it is in your powerful name that we pray and the hope, and we thank you for the hope that you give. Your name. Amen.